I own a flat with my mum that we bought from the council around nine years ago at discount. I'd popped around for some reason and noticed that the flat over the road was up for sale. I'd always fancied getting a few of those flats as I thought they'd be easy to manage. It's Christmas, so I've got all of this time on my hands. My brain is ticking away with the property I've seen. I go online. I start playing with numbers. I start investigating the existing equity in my flat. Next thing I know, I've established I have around 20k to play with. Previous to this, years ago, I had decided I wanted a buy-to-let property, but at the time, didn't have the capital. I had chosen the area I wanted to purchase in, developed a spreadsheet, tracked the sales of properties via rental incomes, etc. I did this for around six to eight months before other things began to take my mind away. I'm excited. I start to study the area again. But then I start to think, one buy-to-let, that's not really enough. It will take me years before I can buy my second, then my third. What can I do to increase the speed? Buy to sell. Hmm. Find a property, renovate, sell on, build up some more funds. I've studied the market a lot, and I'm talking a good 50 plus hours a week on Rightmove, land registry, etc. And I've picked up on the people who are doing this, buying cheap, renovating and flipping. Before I know it, I've arranged my remortgage. Within a week, I've gone from casual browsing to an in-depth Excel spreadsheet, crunching numbers, percentages, costings, etc. I think this is going ahead. You're listening to Expat Property Story, a podcast in which I share my story to smooth the way for you to have your own Expat Property Story. Hello there. Hit the floor 74. We're going back to bingo rhyming slang this week as we hunt down one of the inspirations behind this very podcast. Those were the words of Darren McNeil introducing this week's show, which is the third consecutive week in which we've found inspirational, interesting and yes, exclusive guests who have never appeared in any other podcasts before. Now, I've been lucky enough to have had a few guests on that have had a major influence on mine and my wife's expat property story such as Rob Dix from The Property Podcast back in the very first episode, Mike Stenhouse of Inside Property Investing in episode 33, and Richard Brown from The Property Voice in episode 34. And in my humble opinion, if you haven't already done so, those episodes are well worth going back for. But today's guest also played his part, although he didn't know it until we met online last week. If you've been with us since the beginning, you'll know that our story started in Easter 2017 when we ditched our financial advisor, sold most of our stocks and shares, remortgaged the family home and slowly built our UK property portfolio. And you may also recall that our education began via the podcasts I just mentioned and also via two forums, Property Tribes run by Vanessa Warwick, who also appeared back in episodes 10 and 13, and the Property Hub Forum run by Rob Dix and his business partner, Rob Bentz. Around about this time, Darren was also starting his property story. On the Property Hub forum, there's a section called Progress Journals, where property investors document, well, their progress. And if you already know this, then you're sure to have read Darren's journal, which he began on February the 16th, 2017, and now stretches to 21 pages with 524 replies and 41,600 views. Now, when I first came across Darren's journal, it was already a few months old, so there was already a fair few pages to binge my way through, like a series on Netflix. And what I loved about it was the honesty, 
the frankness and the warts and all integrity as he tackled all the obstacles in his way to get his portfolio off the ground so that he could leave his job at the supermarket armed only with a small inheritance and endless cups of tea. As I read Darren's journal, I could see the benefits of writing it all down. So in December 2017, nine months after opting out of stocks and shares and into property, I decided to start writing it all down in my own journal. I used my memory to document the events of the preceding seven months until the 18th of December 2017, when my journal became more like a diary. Now, I don't write in it every day, so strictly speaking, it's not a diary, but it is written in diary format. Sometimes I don't write in it for a couple of weeks, and sometimes I'll write in it twice a day. But in Times New Roman font size 12, as I record this, it now consists of 540 pages and nearly 318,000 words. Now, my journal is not public like Darren's is, but when I decided to start a podcast and I was thinking about the format, I remembered Darren's journal and hit upon the idea of turning my story into this podcast. I think just hearing from experts can sometimes be overwhelming or hard to relate to, so I wanted my podcast to be a blend of mine and my wife's experiences, challenges and lessons learned in tandem with interviews from those who know more than me. And 73 episodes later, here we are. Today's story starts in Rossendale, slap bang in the middle of Bolton, Blackburn, Burnley and Rochdale, which are all towns to the northwest of Manchester. Darren's story is a tale of determination and drive, setbacks and solutions, and insight and inspiration, as he takes us on his passage to financial freedom with a starting pot of £20,000. And while his story is by no means finished, if it were to stop now, you could say it has a happy ending, which helps explain his property song of choice. There's a Thailand property disc. It's a beautiful day because property gives you the opportunity. I don't think you get in many other areas where if you get it right, life is just absolutely wonderful. Definitely. I could stop working tomorrow now if I wanted to, and do whatever I wanted. I think it just sums up the the positives of what can be achieved. And it makes me smile. Yeah, I think that would be it. Darren's days were not always so beautiful. 2017 was the year that I actually purchased the property. Before that, I'd been in retail for around 20 years. I actually did my work experience at Marks and Sparks when I was 15, knowing that I'd be able to get a job when I was 16. So that was my thought process. So I got a part-time job. Did that while I were at college and uni. Was literally working 40 hours a week whilst doing uni as well. So I was going in, doing six in the morning till something, going to uni, coming back, doing five till whatever time they used to close back then. Working my days off, working Sundays, just, just working was doing a degree in IT, realised I hated it, but carried on doing it, got my degree, and then just found myself still working at Marx's. I think I did maybe about a year, and then an opportunity came up for Lidl as an assistant manager type thing. So I went and did the interview, got the job, ended up in Rochdale doing that one, ended up being a manager within the first 12 months. So I did two years with them. Then jumped ship to Aldi because they paid better. 
two years with them. Jump ship again to Neto, if anyone remembers Neto. So uh was with them and then Asda bought them. So ended up then going to Asda. I think I ended up doing seven years between Asda and Neto. Jump ship again to B&M, was running stores there. And retail's awful. Retail is the worst industry in the world. To it, It's awful. Stress. I was working maybe 70 hours a week. Uh, back when I was in Lidl and Aldi, because the wages were so tight for the staff, I used to run holidays through to balance the wage books of myself. So I'd, I'd literally put myself down as days holiday to pay for the staff so we had enough people. And it, it was just working through holidays. It, it was very intense. We'll be back with the podcast in a second. But I just wanted to let you know that we help high net worth individuals who perhaps don't have the time, expertise or contacts to find deals that stack right now. We can offer fixed rate returns of up to 12%. So instead of watching your savings get swallowed by inflation, why not schedule a free call via the link in the show notes to see how we might work together. Now back to the pod. You were working during your holidays just for the benefit of your co-workers. So say, I don't know, said the weekly wage was 500 quid and I was down for a holiday. I would have that 500 quid to spend on wages then. So, yeah, that was obviously when I were a lot younger. So that was my early 20s. And then the last one was B&M. So I had this lovely, beautiful shop. Got very little support from the higher management team within B&M setting it up. I didn't have good supervisors. The colleagues who were working there weren't the greatest, but I had what I had. And I went on holiday with my missus at the time and the kids. Came back. Shop was literally on fire. It was, like, broken. Didn't have the wages then to fix the shop and had a big visit off one of, like, the regional director-type things who basically bounced me around the shop and threatened me with my job. And I just went up to my office and I just thought, I don't need this crap. I've had enough of this. And I think there's a bit of freedom about that because the threat was leave the business or go to a smaller shop and we'll pay you less money. The moment they said about less money, I went back home and I looked at how I could cut the living expenses and lower my wage. And then suddenly I realised we could live off less income And I was like, well, that suddenly opens up a whole new world of different jobs. And the idiot in me thought, I'll be a primary school teacher. So to do that, I needed to go to uni and study and then also needed experience. So I couldn't get that whilst working in retail. So I decided, right, well, I'm quitting retail. I'll get a part-time job and I'll do a couple of days at the school. So For one year, I was just going to do volunteering at school and then part-time. And then year two, I was then going to go to uni and do the course. So I was going to do a, is it a PGSE, I think it is? in PGCE. Yeah, in mathematics, because you could get a bit more wages I worked out. And I like maths. So I was doing my experience from the September at one school up until Christmas. 
Christmas of 16, so just about to go into 2017. And then from Christmas onwards, I was at another school. And it was the first Christmas I'd ever had off. I'd never had a Christmas off before. And I had a lot of time on my hands. I had a, a little bit of money, not a lot, just a little bit. No pension, probably what, mid-30s. And it was, what am I going to do? I'm not going to have a pension. I'm never going to. And I had this little pot of money. And I've always liked houses. And I thought, well, why not get one buy to let? I had zero knowledge at this stage. I thought, let's get one buy to let. And if I had maybe three or four, that would substitute sort of a basic pension amount each month. So the plan was get one, don't touch any of the rental income, eventually save up, buy another. Obviously, then you, your rental income's doubled, buy another. But obviously, very slowly over, what, 20 years or something. Like I said, I had no knowledge. I didn't know anything about properties going up in value. I was literally a complete and utter noob. So I just sat there that Christmas on right move, looking at houses local to me. And it always gives you the sale history. And I kept noticing, because this was back when houses were dirt cheap as well, like where I am. Houses were ridiculously cheap. So I was just flicking around, looking at the prices, and noticed like it had sold six months before for, I don't know, set 40 grand. And then it was on the market, 70 grand. I was like, ooh. And I'd see the before pictures and I'd see the after pictures. And then I kept spotting these trends of people doing it. Obviously, I didn't know anything about renovating, didn't know anything about anything, but it just got things clicking in my head. So I was still doing the primary school thing. And then I started my journal on Property Hub. And I don't know how I came about it, but I'd wrote to the empty housing officer at Rosendale Council, the local council, asking about empty houses. And I think it's the phrase, fake it till you make it. So they thought I was a builder and a property developer. I'd never even stepped foot in a house before, like one of these. Anyway, I got on really well with the lady. And at the time, they had a empty homes thing where they had loads of derelict properties or empty properties. Anyway, long story short, she introduced me to the potential seller of a property, 179 New Church Road, which is my first ever house. So anyway, I met him. Again, fake till you make it, pretended I knew what I was talking about. Managed to talk him into accepting a £26,500 cash offer. Darren comes from an entrepreneurial family, which played a part when it came to getting his first deal over the line. My dad's self-employed. My sister's self-employed. My mum did a bit here and there, and then she went self-employed. So they've all had lots of different jobs and stuff like that. So that must be where I got that from. So I'd spoke to my dad when I first found this house and I was like, it's a bargain. And I only had, I think I had 20 grand. So obviously the purchase price was 26 and a half or something like that. And I needed renovation money. And my nana at the time had not long passed. So we were all getting a little bit of inheritance. So I think I got 5,000 and then my dad had some and he said, and I was just chatting to him and I was like, this is an amazing opportunity. I said, the guys accepted this offer. I said, I need this amount of money. So about 40 all in. So I said, there's a good chance for me to make 20 grand here. Previously, I'd only been earning 32 a year. Anyway, he's like, right, I'll lend you the cash. 
So I was like, that's brilliant. What do you think it was worth, done up? At the time, I thought it was worth 60. I sold it for 70. And spent how much on it? I think it was roughly about 15, because it was back when I used to do everything myself. It wasn't actually that bad. Now, if I saw that now, I'd be like, yeah, it's four weeks and that's done. I think I got it done in four or five weeks of me just going working, going working, lots of YouTube, basically just figuring stuff out, fitted the kitchen myself, did tiling myself, I'd never done anything like that in my life. And then I sold it before it went live on the market as well, the day before. So you basically discovered for yourself the buy, refurbish, refinance model. Well, some of them, I think that initially you were just doing flips, weren't you? Yeah. So originally my plan was, again, this is back when houses were mega cheap. I was aware that landlords couldn't buy anything under 50 grand because of lending. No one lent under 50. And as crazy as it sounds now, there were so many houses available under £40,000. And I mean, like, awash with them. So my initial business plan was, well, let's buy these, do them up, put them on at about 60, and then it'd target landlords. Landlords would be able to buy them, and that's what I'd be able to do. So at the very start, all I wanted to do was flip, 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 flip. And then we're just driving along one day, Everything happens when I'm in the car. It must be where I, I get to think. I can't remember at what stage I were at. I think it was maybe after I'd done four or five. And I was driving along and I just thought, what would I do if suddenly there were any houses available to flip? What would I do for an income? I then focused on getting a load of buy-to-lets. So that, that was my initial... I did have one before then. I had uh, 10 St. James Row, which was the second house that I ever bought, again through the council. And I paid £22,500 for that. I spent 20 on that one. And I still own it now. That's a little one bed in Rotten Stall. It's worth probably 90 grand now. Wow. You've refinanced it since? I've refinanced it twice. The second house that I ever bought, I actually borrowed money. I didn't leave my part-time job until about the third property, I think. So I was doing 20 hours a week or something at a supermarket at Asda. That's what I remember Yeah, from the journal. I was stacking shelves just to get a bit of income in. I'd do six in the morning till about 10 or 11, three days a week, I think it were. And then I'd go to the properties and then hands-on do everything myself. So we were living on a shoestring and then any profit I had, I refused to touch it. It just went back into the pot. When I sold the first one and I got the 70 in, I didn't pay my dad back. In fact, I've only just paid him back. Not lying, I paid him back just before Christmas. <laughs> so I had a pot of 70 grand, which most people would have gone and bought something flashy and spent it on some. I kept that in the business. Since property two, I've never paid for a property using my own money. I always use other people's. So at the very start, a lad called Chris was reading my thing on Property Hub, got in touch with me. He lives down south. He was like, I like what you're doing. Is there any way we could work together? Maybe I could lend you the money. You could do the house, pay me some interest, and we do that. So he lent me the money on property number two. And then from that point, the more I wrote about what I was doing, the more people sort of got in touch to a point where I had too many people wanting to lend me money and I couldn't keep up with it. It's not like that anymore. 
Uh, <laughs> I wish it were. I still have quite a few people lending me money, but it's a smaller circle. So property two, I've borrowed someone else's money. The purchase cost, obviously, I didn't have to fund. And then I had a pot of money to do that house up. And then I think I had someone else lend me some more money for another one. So I had a pot of money to do that one up. And then that's how it snowballed. So I started off doing one at a time. Then I got to being able to do two at a time. I think I got to doing maybe four or five of my own. And then I've got to a point, obviously, where I'm doing it for other people, where I can do maybe 15 at a time now quite easily. Wow. And how do you find all the builders? I'm still using the same carpet fitters from the very first house. I'm still using the same decorators. Plumbers I've gone through loads. You say you're doing 15 at a time. You can do 15 at a time, but that's 15 different builders, isn't it? Well, it depends on the level of renovation. So not everything is a massive renovation. Some can just be carpets and decorating. That's a dead easy. At the moment, I'm doing, I think it's five big rip-outs. So that is challenging because what I have found over the years is we've been stung quite a few times. We had a roofer who charged us for a roof, sent us pictures of someone else's completed roof and hadn't even stepped foot on it. But because we were getting pictures, you just assume. We've had issues of poor quality builders where they've done a job and then issues come down the line three, four months later. So at the moment, I use a lad called Sean. I think I met him on maybe my fifth property. Probably the last two years, he's worked solid for me, no one else. He's still self-employed, but he just works for me. And then over the last few months, I've got another two guys working for me now on the building side. But I'm very hesitant now on what I do and taking people on. It's very baby steps. It's really, really hard to balance the amount of renovations that we've got going on. And in all honesty, they probably take a little bit longer than what they should because I'm having to spread just a few people over multiple properties. But I'd rather do that than the client end up getting stung because we've had some numpty in who's fleeced us. It's been a painful, painful experience after lockdown, when everyone in the UK decided they had a load of money and wanted to do their houses up and every trade was booked up solid, that was really the rise of these cowboy builders, roofers, you name it. I remember reading at the start, someone said that, you know, the builder or the plumber or whoever you're using at the very start, they won't be with you in a few years because they'll have let you down. I was like, no, no, they won't. And my God, we've been stung. It's the most stressful part of my job, finding people who are reliable, trustworthy, and can do a good job. Darren, what I really want to talk about today mostly is your journal. Why you started the journal, how you started it, the benefits of the journal, etc., etc. Yeah, so um, like I said, when, when I first started, I had zero knowledge. So you jump on the internet and just start doing a bit of basic research and just a bit of education and, you know, just anything. You just want to soak up as much as you can. And I quickly clocked on to the amount of people who are out there charging money for knowledge or education. I'm Northern. I'm tight. I don't want to pay. I'll just look online. And I think that's one of the first things that I was writing about. It was basically because 
you go online and you only saw the people who were successful. And I always took that with a pinch of salt anyway. But you never heard about the story or how they got there or how they achieved it. It was all, yeah, it's dead easy, this. I've done this and this, and within 12 months, I've got this. And I'm, I'm like, nah, I don't think so. So I genuinely just started writing it just to document what I were doing. That that were it, really. There were, there were no sort of master plan. I had no intentions of achieving what I've achieved. Obviously, I wanted to do well, but I never thought I would get to where I am now. And yeah, just mind farts, as I call them. I just used to scribble all sorts of crap down. And like I said, the cups of tea and when I'd had a bad day or anything like that, I I would just literally just write in what was going through my head at the time. And what do you think the benefits of it have been? It was a little bit like accountability. So I would put down what I wanted to do. At the time, I didn't really have anyone to speak to about it, obviously, because I was just doing a couple of houses. It's a nice community as well on the property because it's all very, there are other forums out there, but then they're full of know-it-alls and, you know, people like that, whereas I find the property of one is more beginnery. So it's the people who are just looking for a nice bit of advice, basic questions, And I liked that because I could post something and not get scrutinised or have some expert, you know, telling me what I should be doing and that. And that's what I liked about it. And I felt accountability because even though I didn't know anyone who commented, I think because I put it on paper or on the screen, technically, and I'd said I was going to do it, it made me do it. So I think that's the biggest benefit I've had from that. And then... I do just like to use it as a little bit of a dumping ground as well for what's on my mind. So I still do the journal now. Granted, not as often as I would like to. I try to do it once a month now, just little bits of updates. But even then, I got to a point where I wasn't sure whether to keep writing about what I was doing business-wise, whether people were going to start finding it a bit boring, because I could talk about the business side all day. Or just try and keep it more to what I was personally doing because that was how it started off. So at the moment, I'm trying to keep it more about what I'm personally doing, so building up my own portfolio rather than what the lettings agency is doing or the sourcing company is doing. It has had its benefits, don't get me wrong. A lot of my clients have come from that forum, but that was never the intention. What was the intention? The intention was... I was going on a new venture. I was literally all alone. The missus at the time wasn't interested. And I was just literally on my own. I didn't know anyone in property. Like I said, it was just a nice little community where I could just put down what I was doing. You get a nice bit of occasional feedback. The plan was just to document how I progressed and that were it. I think my plan was to do maybe two or three flips in a year or something originally. Yeah, and that were it. So it was the accountability. It was a way of allowing me to to get off what was in my mind, you know, what, what I was thinking about. Because as I said, I had no one to talk to. It's a lonely world property. None of my friends do it. None of my family do it. There's only myself that's in it. So I think that was it. There are some people who talk about the benefits of when you write things down, it really helps to organise the thoughts in your mind and stuff. So that's one of the advantages of a journal. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's why people have diaries and that, isn't it? It's just a more public way of doing it. 
it's helped me. It's helped me personally in property and it's helped my businesses as well. I find a lot of the people who approach me have, have read my story and they probably feel that they know me as well because I do talk about what's going on in my life. I am quite open. I talk about when it's a massive, awful day of hell and I talk about when it's a good day. One of the things that struck me about your journal was how open and, and brave it was and it was just kind of, this is me, this is what I do, I'm not an expert and it was very honest. Well, like I said, when I was first starting out and you're jumping on YouTube, you only see the millionaire experts who've got everything, but you don't know how they've got there. Or even if they are millionaires. <laughs> well, we know full well they're all fuller, you know. So let me tell you, Darren, actually, I started a journal because you started a journal. I read your journal and I thought, I think I'm going to start a journal as well. I didn't want mine to be public like yours was. Much later, when I decided to start this podcast, I was once again influenced by Darren's journal. I started a podcast for various reasons. But when I did start the podcast, I decided what I was going to do was tell my story from the beginning. So the journal was just so helpful for that. You know, I was able to go into real details about what I'd done because I wouldn't have remembered it, but I had the journal to go back. I'm really glad that I did it because if I could go back now and just see things that I thought were such a big issue at the time. Now, I wouldn't even blink an eyelid at it. But at the time, it was like, oh, my God, what do I do now? And I think it's nice to see sort of the naivety at the start as well. I'll tell you some of the benefits I find from it. So you talk about the naivety, but also you can see the things that you're worried about. And then looking back on it, you go, well, I didn't need to worry about that. So then you can take that forward. So the things that you're worried about now equally you know that okay so you know it turned out all right before so what i'm worried about now will probably turn out okay as well yeah i find now obviously with more experience i don't really worry about things there's always a solution always a solution i think sometimes if an issue crops up i'm quite good now at thinking and resolving it within a minute or two thinking right we'll do this this and this but if it is something big just leave it for an hour and then go back to it. That's it. The other thing that I do, because mine is on Word, it's like a massive resource now. I just command F. I've got a problem or something. Have a look through. Even just like, you know, capital gains tax or, you know, just anything. And then it's all there. You know, just skim through it. It's just so good for me. I'm glad that I did it because in a few years, I'll probably go back and maybe read it all. I sometimes go back and read a year. So now I would read February 2022 and see where I where I was a year ago. That's quite fun. From me personally now, because I've done so many properties, it's hard for me to recall things now. I think I'm doing personal flip number 22 at the moment. And then on top of that, I've got the 20-odd rental properties that I personally own. So that's 40-odd for myself. And then I've done maybe 170, 180 houses for clients now. And are you managing these properties? Yeah. So at the moment, we've got, including everything currently being purchased by clients, we're on about 203. Then I'm doing six flips for clients as well. Do you work with expats, Darren? I work with everyone. I've got a couple of clients in the US. So they're Irish clients who live in the US. I think there's maybe three or four in Dubai, some in China. One thing I wanted to ask you, a difficult question in a way, some people would say that the area of the country you're in 
is very high yield, right? But perhaps the capital growth isn't there. Has that changed recently? The capital growth over the last 18 months, as you can see by my smile, has been phenomenal. Absolutely amazing. My initial portfolio, because majority were bought pre-COVID, it's doubled in value. I put it to Darren that the last areas to rise in value just before a recession may be the first to fall when there's a housing price correction. The reality is we buy houses at 70, 80 grand now. Previously, they were 40. If you're never going to sell it, what does it matter? And that's the way I look at it. I've just had two offers accepted at 57,000 and I think 55 grand. And the three that I've just completed on were 45 grand, 55 grand and 60 grand. Now, the way I've always looked at it is how can you buy something so cheap when it costs double that to build it, if not more? So for me, just logically thinking, I'm buying something at a lower price than what you could actually build it for. It can't stay that cheap. People turn their noses up at our areas because they are cheap. But the employment's there. All our tenants are employed. Just because it costs us less to live than it does down south, that's great. Okay. So, Darren, here's the devil's advocate question. What would you say to people if they say, yeah, okay, the housing stock is a lot cheaper than it would be in London, say, for example, but if it nets down to something like about £150 a month profit and your boiler goes, that's all your profit gone in a year. So it's a 20% ROI, some houses that you buy, possibly. What would you say to that argument? Well, say we've got a 70 grand house. That's now pulling in 525 a month. So you're actually clearing 300. Some of mine are clearing 350 a month. And yeah, you know what? A boiler might go. But in my experience, I think I've replaced one boiler. Yes, it can wipe it out. But the other side of it is it's a long-term business. If you think you can do this and do it short term, you're a little bit deluded, I think. You need a big amount of cash to make it work quickly in the short term. Realistically, this is a 20, 30-year play. In 20, 30 years, my little 70 grand houses will probably quadrupled. As well, the issue with, as you said, the boiler going or the roof needs doing or whatever, you feel that more if you've only got one or two properties. I wouldn't even bat an eyelid now. I'd just be like, right, go fix it. So you have the economies of scale. But even so, with London properties, the people I speak to who do that clear less money a month than I do. Yes, they get the capital gain, which is great, but it's only on paper. I'm very paper rich, but the cash isn't there for me just to pick up. But on the positives of my types of property is, yeah, we've done the boiler issue, but You've got a property in London where your mortgage is 1,000 quid, 1,200 quid. You have a tenant not pay you for six months. Who's going to be struggling then? Me, where my mortgage is £200 a month, or the guy whose mortgage is £1,200 a month. So my tenant not paying me won't bankrupt me. It's 200 quid, 250 tops. We've got listeners in more than 115 countries. So if someone in one of these countries wants to get in touch with you, Darren... How can they get in touch with you? Through the website, fmp.group. 
we do the majority of our communication on WhatsApp. I just find it a little bit more personal. Someone will email me and then I'll be like, right, do you want to chat on WhatsApp? Like most high achievers, the key ingredient to Darren's recipe for success was hard work. So that's the first key takeaway from this week's episode. Even before Darren started his property portfolio, while he was at university, he was working in the morning before lectures started, in the evenings after they finished, and on Saturdays and Sundays too. People often talk about passive investment, but if such a thing even exists, it certainly involves being active at the start. Bad luck is definitely out there, but good luck comes to those who work hard. So after a hard day at the expat office, you could watch Netflix or you could work on your future. The second thing worth mentioning is the importance of checking up on work done on your property. When Darren said that a roofer once showed him the roof of a completely different property as evidence of work done, it reminded me of another story in which an expat was shown video evidence of a supposedly fully decorated room, which failed to show the lack of progress made had the video zoomed out. So either make sure you're working with someone you've known and trusted a long time, or have someone you trust visit your project to verify what you're being told. And the third, and for me, the most important takeaway from this week's show, is for you to consider the benefits of keeping a property journal. Not only is it a therapeutic way to organise your thoughts, but it's great for your mindset too, as it can help show you that the things you worried about in the past really weren't as much of a problem as they seemed at the time. Writing a journal can also help keep you accountable, either to other people if you make your journal public on Property Hub like Darren did, or to yourself if you do it privately like I do. And journals are a good way to reflect on the ideas that worked and the ones that didn't. And finally, if you write it on Word and by using the search function, a journal can become a great resource over time. I would go as far as to say it may well have been the best property-related decision I have made. Now, if you could leave an honest review, it would really help us grow our community of expat investors. And I know we have lots of listeners in the UK too. And if that's you, your feedback is also welcome as it helps guide future episodes. So drop me an email or leave a review, which you can do by following the link in the show notes or by visiting www.expatpropertystory.com, where you can also sign up to our mailing list to receive our newsletter, which I promise you is coming soon as we put the finishing touches to our shiny new website, which I'll tell you more about when it goes live. If you are an expat, you'll know I've been encouraging you to get in touch to tell your expat property story, no matter how much or little property progress you've made. I know that when I was starting out, hearing Darren's story as he also started out certainly helped me and lots of others not feel so isolated at what can be the hardest part of the story. So don't be shy, get in touch. See if you can guess which capital city this week's exotic listener location is. It has the 13th largest population of all cities within the European Union. It has 18 districts, was originally a fishing village, and has an international airport named after a famous composer. Did you work it out? One more clue. The composer was Chopin who I must admit I thought was French, but apparently he was Polish. We're talking about Warsaw, the capital city of Poland, where we have a growing number of expats. So if you're one of them, and even if you're not, I'd love to hear from you and find out about your expat property adventures. So leave me a message or an honest review at, once again, 
thepropertystory.com. Next week, we have a first for you, and it's a topic that you will probably find useful if you're an expat ever planning to return to the UK, as we hear from Paddy Horsington, who will be our first ever repat. We have had some expat guests who have subsequently gone home to the UK, such as Jim Pittman in episode 54, but I think this is the first time we've spoken to someone who's been back a while, so Paddy will be telling us some of the things to look out for as we hear his expat and repat property story. Many thanks to Darren from FMP Group for appearing on this week's show and to you for listening. That's it for this week, except, of course, to request that if there's someone you know, expat or not, who might like to listen to this podcast, then share the show to spread the word. You've been listening to Expat.